Oral Histories of the National Railway Museum. In 2018, Ray Bolt, former South Australian Railways fireman and locomotive driver, spoke with Peter Hackworth at the Talem Bend Visitor Centre. Ray recounts stories of his days driving and firing steam engines and the conversion from steam to diesel. What are the particular skills that differentiate between a really good engine driver and an ordinary engine driver? I don't want to blow my bags about it, but I deem that I picked up messages from others pretty quickly and knew that what I was doing was the right thing because they said that's the way it should be done. And I never had any bother at all. Only if we had Lee Creek Coal at Mount Gambier, Lee Creek Coal, we'd have trouble raising steam because Lee Creek Coal wasn't designed for steam engines. All right, if you had plenty of forced oxygen underneath the firebed, but it used to clinker. You know what clinker is? Well, the coal would burn into like treacle or golden syrup. It all joined together and the air couldn't get through the firebed. And you've got to have oxygen through the firebed and you'd be in trouble. And I couldn't get steam by that method and the driver had to go and he couldn't either. It's the same thing. <laughs> so how would you cure that problem? How would you... Well, you've got to get rid of it out of the firebox, out of, out of the, yeah, yeah, under the fire hole uh, into, into the uh, ash pan and then hopefully drop it somewhere. <laughs> well, as long as it doesn't get full up, I mean, it'll stay there for quite some time. It's done as a matter of spreading your fire back in one place, getting rid of what's not necessary. You've got to get rid of that in the front part of it, and then spread your fire again and be a bit tense. You, lo you lose time, of course, naturally, because you can't do this on the run. You've got to stop and treat it differently and gradually build up your fire again, but you're dealing with the same damn coal. Now, Mount Gambier, they tried putting oil on the tender. Some oil. Some oil, that's right, and poured it up there. Incidentally, the ruddy thing caught fire. It was the summertime, and they had to get the fire brigade out to put it out. So the loco foreman decided never to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> and particularly some oil, which is fairly thin. Yeah, that's they, right. They really tried for the heavy furnace oil. Yes, that's right. Which needed to be heated, first of all, in the yes. tender. Before yeah, that's you right. Yeah, get exactly. the atomizer working. That's right, yeah. 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 So, uh, as someone who's never worked on a steam engine, what's the process for firing an engine? Well, it's got to be lit up first, four o'clock in the morning or whatever it is. How do you light it up? It can be done in two ways. It can be part of the fire from yesterday. You bank it up right up against the fire hall door and cover it over with a bit of raw coal. Shut everything down, see that you've got a full glass of water in the boiler, bring the steam down, and that will last for hours while you're sleeping. And when you go out there in the morning, all you have to do is spread the fire out, turn the jet on, because there's a bit of steam there, turn the jet on, which is an automatic draft from the smoke box through the tubes, and boosts the fire, and it gradually increases in steam pressure. But if you get down to no steam at all, you've dropped the fire out and she's dead cold. Now you've got to start again by putting cotton waste with kerosene and oil in the firebox, light it up and put it in there. And then you put some uh, kindling stuff on there so that, that you don't put coal on until you get steam. It gradually increases in temperature by putting more wood on there. And uh, until you start to get steam, then you can turn the jet on a little bit. And well, what does the jet do? It draws through from the uh, smoke box, through the tubes, and draws on the fire, boosts the draft on the fire. 
And is that air warmed, is it, before it goes on? Not until you get steam and the tubes get hot. <laughs> then it might be. And from cold to when you've got full steam to be yes. able to proceed, how many hours? Oh, well, now all the locos are a bit different. Mm. I'm thinking of two and a half, three hours, something like that. For an RX? Yes. Small power. Yeah, the higher powered locomotives. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, the 600 would have taken a bit longer. A bit, bit longer, yeah, 600. And Ray, if I recall, there was a bit of a difference between uh, preparing a warm engine as opposed to a cold engine. Oh, of course, yes, there is too. Can <laughs> <laughs> explain that? Most big engines had site feed lubricators. It's a, a system of oiling points on the loco that need lubrication, where oil is dropped up through water in a cylinder and they've got little controls underneath there for where the oil goes up in drops, one or two drops a minute or something or other, yeah. And then it's blown away through copper pipes to the points of lubrication. So you've got to set that, that becomes automatic, I suppose. But the big ends are grease operated, it's a big grease gun in there. Right, museum in there. You were thinking of some other means, John? Sometimes, of course, you, you, places like Peterborough, I'm not sure about Taylor and Benro, but uh, some places had steam pressure lines going around the roundhouse. Oh, okay. And they would, you, you'd put a device into the, into the funnel yes. and create. Oh, an that's right, vacuum. yes. Remember that? Yes, I do. They had one here. Right. It's a um, tube funnel thing with a trigger business on it. You put it up over the funnel and it bent so that the bend is up and the blast is up drawing on the fire. <laughs> <laughs> Marvellous. So, so when you finished at Walsley, where did yeah. you go to then? Came to Tail and Bend. They transferred me here in 1958. And were you happy about that? Oh yeah, fantastic. I mean, it's all new, the big depot. But I'd been on most of the locomotives at Walsley because they come down there to Mount Gambia, most of them. And I suppose you get used to um, any class that you, you've been on and worked on. So, and at Talem, where were you typically you, the runs that you were doing? Well, we used to go out to um, Karunda, to uh, Loxton and uh, Barmera, on the Barmera line. Adelaide, of course. Tibinga. Yinkani. Yinkani, yeah. yeah. And out in the scrub from Monada South. Oh, Sedan. Sedan, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, wasn't Sedan added to the Tail and Bend roster? Yes, it was. It was originally the, the Sedan. The Mile End. It was yeah. Mile End. Yes. yes. I fired for um, a bloke from Mile End, Rick Hillier. Mm. He used to wear a bowler hat. <laughs> Strange. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether it was because of him or what it was or whether he was given this hat or what, but anyway. We used to fire to Sedan and go into the barracks, and the barracks were made of small fluted corrugated galvanised iron. Ceilings and all. Walls. <laughs> Hot as Hades. <laughs> oh, grief. <laughs> And that was a real episode, I suppose, firing all that now, way. Did you have to coal your own engine at Sedan, or was there someone in attendance to top up with coal? No, I, I can't recall anybody being there as an employee. Yeah. Although there must have been, because they would have looked after the barracks and cleaned yeah. them. We didn't have yeah. to do that. <laughs> but the pattern where you took a light engine from here, from Tail and Bend, yes. through to Monato South. That's right. Hooked yeah. onto your load. Yes. Up yeah. to Sedan, that's overnight right. Sedan yes, barracks, that's right. and yeah. retrace your steps the following day. Yes, yes, yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. We used to go, the process was the loco would come back to uh, Upper Murrah and uh, stable there. Mm -hmm. Stable on the good siding. 
with the derail on. Mm-hmm. You know the story? No. <laughs> and what's the derail? Derail is on the good siding so that it protects the main line and or the passing siding. It was designed, Peter, to deliberately derail yes. a truck that might have got away. Got from, away. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. on a slight slope, something yeah. like that. So See, somebody, get, they can go there and, and release the handbrake on a truck, the four-wheelers, and it would roll down the hill and the derail would derail it and go off and be quite safe yeah. from any other movements. Yeah, yeah. Um, without that impediment, of course, a, a truck could easily get out onto the main line. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, anyway, this particular day, apparently they stabled the engine, never put the handbrake on, because when you put the handbrake on with the air on, it's got a terrific advantage over the wheels because it's hard on, really is hard on. And they couldn't have put the handbrake on because the uh, truck got away and ran down the hill over the Manham Palmer Road crossing, down around the bend. What speed it must have gathered before it got down into that valley, I'll never know. How it got around those curves. Anyway, there's an old lady there, Mrs. Abraham, lives down the bottom, and she used to come out and wave to me as we went past, and she thought I was the only one that ever went out there. <laughs> anyway, she must have been out there watching this loco go up and down, went up that uh, and up there again. How many times it did that, I don't know. <laughs> now that would have been Reedy Creek, I think that you were. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Did you have a favourite run? Well, I never had any obsessions about any trip. Everything was uh, different. Not two trips were the same because you had different locos, you had different trains, different braking, no two trains break the same. Yeah, there was so much difference in each trip, I reckon. And what about the transition from steam to diesel? How did you feel about that? Well, not good. But you've still got service to carry on with. You've got to do what they want you to do, and you've got to learn it and uh, do it again to the best of your ability. But I didn't like it. Steam, to me, was the greatest. Whatever you do to a steam loco, to the controls, they respond. Diesel electrics don't, they're computerised. They do it all themselves. You virtually don't drive them. It drives itself. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the gradients, you don't wind the wheel right down. <laughs> it does it itself. Yeah. <laughs> it's all done for you. Yeah, it is, yeah. That's the part I didn't like about it, yeah. Even though we had to do the exams and so forth. And what year did the last, did they finally transition completely to diesel? Well, they came in in the early 50s, didn't they? Mm. Yeah. We only had it on a Sunday night at Wolseley on the Blue Lake, a diesel. Other weeks, days of the week were steam. And gradually uh, phased out. 1967 steam went out here. Was it significant such that you remember taking your last steam train when you were working for the railways? We had a three-day trip to Mount Gambier on Steam Ranger. To me, that was the ultimate. A great, a great trip. Really was. Was that with 520 or...? Yes, it was. Yes, yeah. Oh, magic locomotive. <laughs> they really are. The trip was eventful. Everybody enjoyed themselves. On the way back, we had a dinner at the King Craig Hotel at Narracourt. And all the bosses were there, the superintendent, the loco inspector, traffic inspector. Uh, quite a few bosses there. And the bosses had to tell a story about what experience they had. And I said, well... I've got one that doesn't go down too well when you're eating food, but it's all about cooking food on the shovel in the firebox. And I said, 
years ago, when the old fellas coming up from Mile End to Mount Lofty took short, they'd use the shovel in the cabin rather than stop. I remember somebody telling me the guard one time took short and he was out of the brake van and his braces were off and uh, outside and the braces got hooked under the steps and he couldn't get up. <laughs> well anyway, this is about cooking your food on the shovel and I said, ever since then, when we've had meat to cook on the shovel, it goes straight into the firebox and it gets red hot. <laughs> Burns everything off. <laughs> we had a trip to uh, Karunda with 520 and I turned on the triangle and she screeched and screamed around. It was too short for the length of the loco, really. Yeah. Anyway, we gradually got around and hooked onto the front of the train again and we had 150 passengers. They all lined up along the platform down towards the engine and they had a piece of paper and on the piece of paper they had a slice of bread. When they got down there, we cooked 150 hamburgers on the shovels in the firebox for them. And they thought it was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Something different, totally different. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And you, you talked about turning on the triangle. Yes. What, what does that mean? Well, it turns the loco round for coming back home again. Different to a turntable. Turntable just spins around and faces the opposite way. But a triangle takes you three points, goes out to a point at the top, back around to the left, back around to the right, and up again to that. And you've turned your locomotive. Yeah, basically you're going through 180 degrees. Yes, that's right. Yeah, half a circle. Yeah, right. Mm. But a very effective way. Yes. Often used where there was plenty of land available. Yes, that's right. Uh, Turntables were more, for more, you know, built up areas. Limited area, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Trying, triangles dotted all over South yeah. Australia. Right. Have you ever seen pictures of the Mile End Roundhouse? Just a massive turntable in the centre and all around were the bays where the locos were stored, you know, undercover. And what about other incidents as a driver? Did you ever experience any significant derailments or accidents? I never... Well, when I say I never, the loco never came off, but back end of the train does with the um, heat buckled track and there's nothing else you can do about that. I mean, you strike it suddenly, as long as you get over yourself doesn't matter about the truck, whether they go off or not. <laughs> so the back end of ours came off at Bordertown. And I thought it's a terrible thing happened alongside of the platform. It would be awful if it got somewhere near where the ramp goes up and it got onto there and went up onto the platform. would have been terrible. But it didn't. And did you ever have any other incidents or accidents like, you know, at crossings, etc., with vehicles? Yeah, uh, I had one at Paringa. That's where the bridge goes across the river at Renmark. We were there shunting one morning. It was daylight, but it was early morning. And we come across the roadway on an angle to go onto the bridge. And I blew the whistle. We were only going slowly, and I blew the whistle, and you could see down the side of where the cars were coming across. And this dear lady came across, and there's a white line there, and she came across, and she stopped at the white line. And around the Renmark end, coming up behind her, was a white van going like the hammers. Went out around the back of this lady and straight onto the track and hit us in the front. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And we were only just moving steady and I was blowing the whistle and blowing the whistle. <laughs> oh, and he still came there, bang. And of course, out the front went steam and hit his radiator, you know, and steam and water. And I thought, oh God. So I got down and I said, where do you reckon you're going? Nowhere now, of course. <laughs> And he said, we were going picking almonds, Italians, they were going picking almonds somewhere or other. I said, well, you're not going out there today in this vehicle. 
<laughs> so the guard came down and he took the detailed particulars of names and so forth. And when we went into Renmark, this car was out in the backyard of a repair place. <laughs> That's what happened. <laughs> We're going to Barmra. And down the avenue at Renmark, before you get to the bridges there, this big semi-trailer was coming out, poked his nose out, see? And he thought he had room to get out onto the uh, two-way roadway. Now, it would have been okay if there'd been no traffic coming on the left side going to Renmark. He'd have been able to get across, but he couldn't. He had to stop. So the back end of his uh, semi-trailer was fouling the railway line. And we were crashed into it and broke the glasses and the windows and my mate came over and sat on my lap. And, <laughs> and um, anyway, we had to get details of all that. The guard came up and got all the details and I was, God, father. And what sort of speed do you think you would have been doing? Not very fast. No, no. Uh, I mean, I could see there was something going to happen and I had to put the brake on, blew the whistle and all the rest, but he couldn't get out onto the roadway because these traffic was still coming. <laughs> so these things do happen. <laughs> His anticipation was good in one respect, but not in another. And did you spend the rest of your career based here? Yes, I did. Retired here in 1992. And I thought it was a wonderful career. I enjoyed it immensely. And then in retirement, you got involved in the restoration of this uh, building? Yes, I did, yes because they wanted to bulldoze it down after the rail service had finished for the station. Surplus to requirements. And us ex-railway blokes said, that's not going to happen. This is history. This place is history. Yeah. Built in 1913, and I don't want to see it bowl over. So we got the district council on side, and they negotiated with the rail authorities, and they got a 99-year peppercorn lease yeah. of it. We just volunteers look after it for them. I think Peter Dixon was one of the... Yes, he was. Yes. Peter Dixon was a guard and a yardmaster, an employee, of course, and he had a lot to do with the running of certain things in the railways here in Thailand, being, you know, union member. I think he was president and all that sort of business. And I should have asked, when you were based here, yes. where were you living in railway quarters? Did they provide a house? Or yes. Did you... yes, they did. They wanted me to take a house down near Wurton which is a little stopping point just outside the tournament here. So it was called the Worky. The Worky. It was an S-class. S. S for Sam. Right. Yeah, S-class. The biggest driving wheels SAR had on any locomotive. Biggest in Australia. Biggest in Australia, yeah, was six it? Foot, okay. Six yeah. inches. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The old uh, terminology. Yeah, yeah. Marvellous. Yeah. <laughs> and so they wanted you to live out there. Yes. And anyway, I said, look, my wife's a school teacher and we want to be closer to the school. She's got to walk. She can't drive. She doesn't drive. So <clears throat> this, this uh, one became available. Uh, there was an electrician lived in there and he uh, moved out and went somewhere else. I don't know where. Uh, so that's the house we got in Upton Street, named after Harry Upton, well-known person in Tailand Bend. So when you look back on your career, what are your fondest memories? Well... One that always comes to mind is when I went to Mount Gambier on Steam Ranger with three days. It was a long weekend, Saturday, Sunday and Monday. And the story that was written about our homecoming out of Mount Gambier, Wandillo, through the pine forest, the description they gave was early morning of the sound and the echo from the pine forest coming back to you 
well written. And I thought, well, that was magic. <laughs> really was. Thank you very much Pleasure. for your Pleasure. articulate and fantastic <laughs> memories. And I'm so pleased that we've been able to record them. Good, Peter. Thank you so much from you. And okay. John. And Nebby. Nebby. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this oral history podcast from the National Railway Museum.